welcome to Sabby Sabs Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Salvati. My special guest tonight is Dr. Cornell West. He's a philosopher, an activist, a social critic, an actor, a public intellectual, and so much more. Dr. West, thank you so much for coming on. You bless me. You honor me for allowing me to be on. And you just met my beloved wife who helped facilitate this. She's so crazy about you and your show and your courage and your vision. And so am I. You are a strong force for good in such a decadent time in which we live, you know? Oh, thank that means a lot coming from you, Dr. West. Thank you so much. Oh, telling the truth. Oh, wow. Um, I want to get started off talking a little bit about foreign policy with you. Yes, yes. So one of the things um, we have been discussing is Israel and Palestine, this conflict between them. And there's something that I have been noticing. It seems like, particularly in this country, a lot of people seem to have a lot of sympathy for the Israelis in Israel, but it doesn't seem to be the same for the Palestinians. I'm not seeing that same amount of, of empathy towards what they're going through in this conflict. And I find it somewhat concerning just because when I look at the Palestinian struggle, it somewhat reminds me of the struggle that African-Americans have gone through in the United States. So it, it is a little bothersome that people are not as empathetic towards the Palestinian struggle. And I want to get your opinion about that. Why do you think that is? Well, one is, I think, my dear sister, that it's very difficult to get the full-fledged, complicated stories and narratives of precious Palestinians heard in this country. You see that you need to have a context in which there's a robust conversation that's Socratic, self-critical self-scrutinizing, whereas the conservative version and the liberal version of Zionism in the United States constitute the terrain, for the most part, that the Palestinian predicament is viewed. And so when Edward Zaidi and the others, we, we was 40 years ago, we used to go down to New York Times and protest and so forth, saying what? Let's have a serious conversation. Let's get the facts out. What was 1945 about? When? What were the conditions under which it took place? What are the ways in which precious Jewish brothers and sisters who were being viciously attacked by a gangster named Hitler jump out of the burning buildings of Europe and land in a place that they say no people are there. Quit lying. There's people there. Then you land there and you push them out. No, there was no ethnic cleansing. Tell the truth. Yes, you did push over 750,000 out, and you had a choice. You could have gone with Einstein, the great Albert Einstein. You could have gone with Judah Magnus. You could have gone with Ahakaham and tried to coexist. Or you could go with Jabodinsky, who was a Jewish gangster, and a neo-fascist who said, dominate, dominate, dominate. And that was a choice. And the choice that was made was to dominate rather than to coexist. So the story of the Palestinian plight and predicament rarely, if ever, gets heard. And so the only, really, uh, the only access that people have to an understanding of a complicated situation in which there's outright structures of domination and apartheid-like conditions in the West Bank and various forms of discrimination and subjugation within Israel itself, 
uh, uh, that rarely gets gets told. And of course, as long as you can throw out the anti-Semitic label on somebody, it's a conversation stopper. It just shuts down any serious critical examination. And so those of us who who try to be committed to the truth of human suffering, and that includes, of course, both Palestinian suffering, which is from below, they're the underdogs in the situation, and Jewish suffering, they are the ones who are coordinating with the American empire to reproduce forms of domination in the West Bank, apartheid-like conditions. See, when you, when you make that kind of claim, it could be a brother Noam Chomsky, or it could be a whole host of folk are trying to tell the truth about it. Uh, the great Susanna Hesher herself, who was the, the daughter of one of the great prophetic figures of the 20th century, Abraham Joshua Heschel herself, that she can get misconstrued and misunderstood because she wants to tell the full story about what? Every human being being made in the image of a God that dictates a certain dignity and sanctity, and that includes Palestinian babies and Jewish babies, no matter where they are in the Middle East. And of course, that applies to human beings across across the board. But, you know, I think also about what's going on with the queen, you know, I mean, it, it, isn't this something, I mean, I, I've been reading this text, you know, this text, uh, Legacy of Violence, the History of the British mm -hmm. Empire by our dear sister Carolyn Elkins, who was a very distinguished historian at, 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 at Harvard. And, uh, uh, you say, okay, you know, the queen is a human being. She's made in the image of God, that, uh, that her family, uh, I, I hope and pray that her family is strong enough to bear this mourning. I believe human mourning is something that cuts across race and class and so forth. So that in, in terms of a family situation, I hope and pray that they're strong. But in terms of her institutional role in being head of an empire that mm -hmm. once had one fourth of the land mass in, in the world, that had over 700 million subjects with vicious forms of violence and detention camps. So we can go on and on and on. None of that alluded to. Completely deodorized, thoroughly erased. And all you get is just this glitz and glitter of a country that seems to be undergoing a, a nervous breakdown because of the symbolic loss of their monarchic head. So we have to be able to stay in contact with the humanity of human beings, be they queens, or be they like my own queen, my mother, or anybody else's mother, a brother, a sister, a sibling, and what have you. But we also have to tell some very harsh truths about empires. And uh, it's, it's, I find it very difficult to talk about the monarchy in the largest empire in the history of the world without talking about, okay, you can talk about the best of it and all the wonderful things that you associate with it, but let's also tell the truth about the worst. Right. And the worst is barbarism in very thick forms, very thick forms. The queen herself mourned the death of her father when she was in Kenya. Well, what was going on in Kenya with the British Empire? You see, I mean, just let's just be honest and candid about the, the rationalizations for some of the most vicious and atrocious treatments of, of, of human beings that were taking place under the British Empire. I know I don't want to go on too long in this, but I'm just trying to make the connection between the militarism and imperialism that takes place abroad and then how that circumscribes domestic discourse. So you can't even have a serious discussion about 
militarism within the United States, be it in the police or defense department and so forth, without also connecting it to why it is that our public life is so diminished and so impoverished and so empty and our politics so money-driven and our culture so soaked with, with, with guns and drugs and addiction. And where are the countervailing forces? Well, there's Sister Sabrina now. Oh, you got Savage Show and some other shows. Say, look, let's be countervailing forces and tell the truth and be honest and keep some joy in it because we live in some very, very bleak times. I agree. I agree. Um, I know that uh, one of the the issues that you had with with Harvard University, I know that you came out in support of Palestine uh, as well. Um, I'm not sure if you know this, but I came from higher ed as well. I was an academic advisor for over 10 years. Um, I'm here in Massachusetts, so I've worked at Harvard, Boston University, MIT. And in January of this year, I actually decided to leave higher education for good because I want to hear if, if you had this experience. I'm just curious. One of the things that I kind of noticed, it seemed like all of these like elite academic institutions, it just seemed like to me that there was a certain narrative that you had to go along with. And if you didn't, then you would either be pushed out or you would be reprimanded. And I know a lot of times people look at universities as like this liberal creative space where you can go and find yourself. I think that's somewhat true as my experience as a student, but as someone who was an employee, I found it to be actually somewhat a little bit more on the conservative side. I saw it more as like a business. And I think that was somewhat disappointing to me, but I noticed that at all of those institutions, it seemed like black faculty were not treated fairly the way that their white counterparts were. And I don't know if it's just, maybe it's just those schools that I worked at, or do you think this is more a part of a bigger issue? Mm, but I didn't know about your leaving though. I think that's a real loss. It really is. But I mean, I mean, the Lord got all kinds of things waiting for you. You know what I mean? So you, you're blowing up in another context. So I mean, you, you, you can be a force for good in a number of different ways. But I think, my view is this, that, um, you see, when you're living in a dying empire that's undergoing spiritual decay and moral decrepitude, that every institution is affected. So that when you think of colleges and universities, I mean, this is a particular slice of the professional managerial class. Now, a professional managerial class more and more is characterized by greed, myopic calculation, obsession with status, and addiction to celebrity. And they are in the driver's seat in terms of our politicians that come from the professional managerial class, right? The driver's seat in Wall Street, driver's seat in Hollywood, driver's seat in Silicon Valley. And so there's countervailing forces within that class because there's some decent people who can choose to be decent no matter what situation. You can be in a crack house, you can be in your mama's house, a white house. You can still choose integrity, but it's harder and harder to do that. So when you look to the universities, what do you see? Well, you see marketization, commodification, more and more intellectual, spiritual bankruptcy, people obsessed with just making money and status, more and more of the big money going to the administrators, 
rather than even faculty, more the decisions made by trustees. Who in the hell are these trustees? Big, big money. They're the oligarchs. They're the plutocrats. They're the same one tied to the Wall Street greed and so forth. So how are you going to have a commitment to paideia of deep, genuine education with the formation of the attention to the things that matter and the cultivation of critical consciousness and sensibilities and the maturation of compassionate young people who are willing to be truth tellers and justice seekers in a self-critical way. You know, we're not talking about just one ideology, one set of politics, but having a serious Socratic space. Well, it's shrinking. There's no doubt about that. But it's just happening everywhere. It's happening in the law firms. It's happening in medicine. It's happening with the pharmacy and big money in pharmacy. And so this is what happens in a, when the empire in so many of its dominant forms begins to undergo decay and decadence and, and begins to die. And that's exactly what we're living through. And uh, I don't say that to be melodramatic. I said to be tragic comic because it's, it's a blues-like situation. But see, for black folk, this ain't new. We've been a blues people for 400 years, 244 years of slavery, another 100 years of neo-slavery, and then 50 years with a multiracial democracy. And even then, the legacies of not being respected, like professors at Northeastern, Harvard, and so forth, not being you know, devalued or just colorful black, brown faces to be projected so that the diversity and equity and inclusion of uh, 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 projections make the university look as if they're on the cutting edge. And that's nothing but just a neoliberal form of hiding and concealing the massive social misery, the unbelievable and unjustified poverty where 65% of Americans don't, don't ever go to college. So, so, you, so you're only talking about 30 some percent of Americans who even go to college. What about the precious brothers and sisters of all colors who don't even set foot in a car? Well, that's not even part of the dialogue. You see, that's what it is to live in a bubble. That's one reason why I insisted on teaching in prisons for 42 years. Multicultural is even more important than multiculturalism. You can have a whole lot of colorful faces all from the upper middle classes who become part of the chattering classes that hide and conceal the imperial domination around the world the wealth inequality, the patriarchy, the homophobia, the transphobia, and especially the public face of American fascism, which will always be white supremacy. That's right. And it's, it's sometimes it feels like you have to go along to, to get along. Um, I'm, I'm curious, there was something that um, we've mentioned you saying before is that you had a phrase that sometimes you have black faces in high places but that's all, that's really all their representation is. And when you said that, the first person I thought about was Barack Obama. Oh, Even sure. to this day, I don't feel like he was really there to fight for the people. And I'm curious, I want to get your opinion about this as well. Uh, Barack Obama can disappear for a couple of months at a time, but every time he makes an appearance again, he's still really, really beloved, especially by the African-American community. And it's still puzzling to me because I try to explain to people that Barack Obama has stopped a lot of progress in this country. I think back to issues like the NBA strike, uh, the Occupy right. movement, even like Bernie Sanders movement, Barack Obama, Obama made a call and told yes, other communities to drop out. It's Brought just- those neoliberals together and said, drop out anybody but 
Bernie. Everybody but our dear brother Bernie, he said. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's right. And I'm curious because I know you were a part of like the Bernie Sanders like campaign. Why do you think, I guess for especially for African American community, why do you think so many people still love Barack Obama? Well, I think it's not so much loving him. I think he certainly admired. Admiration is not the thing. Same as love, though, you see. People love Martin because they knew Martin loved them, was willing to die for them. They admire Brother Barack Obama because he's a brilliant brother and because he represents success in the system. And, mm. and people want to be successful in the system. So he's admired. Was he willing to die just for the black freedom struggle? No, he's willing to die for the flag. But that's different. He's a patriot in that broader sense. So, so he's admired for his success. Brother Martin King is loved for his greatness. Fannie Lou Hamer's love for her greatness. And so he becomes the highest level of success. He is the black face of the largest empire in the history, of the most powerful empire in the history of the world. And, and most black folk do want some success. They want some status. And he represented that, and I understand that too, because the very fact that he could go that high in the empire meant it was your great, 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 great grandmother and father and my great, great grandmother and father. Blood, sweat, and tears made it possible to open the door for him and for you and my, myself and others. So when I look at him, I don't see just him, but I see all of those folks not only all black folk, because the black freedom food struggles always had vanilla brothers, such as the John Browns and the Ann Bradens and others, right? And always had Brown, David Carrasco's on, always had indigenous people. But I see them. But what I try to make a distinction and say, ah, oh, you look at the dignity of Michelle Obama's mama and her mm. father in a wheelchair, loving his family their family in Chicago. That's the raw stuff that makes it possible for any black middle-class person, including Barack Obama, you know, from, 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 from Kenya and from Kansas, right? So that I feel a certain, uh, I have a certain deep feeling anytime I see black folk flowering and flourishing because I know what's going into the making of it. But then I have to ask them the question, are you gonna choose narrow success with big money or high greatness with sacrificial service to the least of these. Because if our grandparents had only opted for success and not greatness, then we wouldn't have the later successful ones because they're the ones who had to sacrifice. They're the ones who were willing to live and die. They were the ones that told the unpopular truth, the kind of painful truths that you tell on your show. That's what folk were doing. 75 years ago. And that's what Brother Woodfox, who just died in August, right, of the Angola Three, and Mumia Abu Jamal, and, Asada, uh, 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 and Sister Shakur, Asada Shakur, and others, they're the ones sacrificed. It was Hewitt, it was Angela, and we know the names. We can even go to the artists who sacrificed, again, the Curtis Mayfields and the, and, and, and the mm -hmm. Gil Scott Herons and the Nina Simones, sometimes pushed out of their minds. Why? because they love black folks so much and tied it to truth and justice, tied it to a willingness to bear witness, not just for success. So you get your nice little picture on the wall 
in a white house built by black slaves so that people can see that you were the highest black face in the history of the American empire. Fine, success, first step. Are you gonna be great? Ah, uh, that's something else. That's a whole different thing, you see. So that Martin King is gonna live in the hearts of black people forever. Malcolm X will. Fannie Lou Hamer will, see what I mean? James Lawson will. That's a different thing. That's a different thing, you see. That's like, that's like people gonna remember Al Green and, 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 and Luther Vandross and the dramatics and Delphonics, even though they're not in mainstream perceptions being the great artists. Well, they are for some of us. Mm -hmm. Not simply because they mastered the craft, because they gave everything they got for something bigger than them that was beyond the flag. It was the suffering of black people, the suffering of poor people, the suffering of working people here and around the world. And that particular effort and collective movement has been relatively defeated See, we were defeated because most of our great figures were killed and murdered and assassinated and incarcerated or underwent character assassination, or underwent FBI surveillance, or misunderstood and misconstrued so that the mainstream views them as not worthy of listening to. We want the mainstream moderate Black folk. We want those who are conforming to us, adjusting to our injustice, adapting to our indifference. Those are the black folk. And all you gotta do is just look at most black politicians. That's basically what they are. That's, that's basically what, not all of them, but, but most of them. But it's not just politicians, but just more and more, you know, it's the black, black middle class, the black bourgeoisie has been a major failure when it comes to upholding the struggle for black poor people. That's the right. William Barber's movement, the Poor People's Campaign. How come we can't have black bourgeois folk giving him millions of dollars to support what he's doing? Where is their cash? Where is their priorities? Not that they have to give up their status, but it just shows that they, they, they've become well-adjusted and unjust. You know, the Negro National Anthem, not just lift every voice, but what happens to those who become intoxicated with the wine of the world, intoxicated with the felicities of American bourgeois existence. So all you want is just spectacle and image and status rather than courage and service and willing to live and die for something bigger than you and your family. And that's where it's a relative defeat. But we have had relative defeat before and we bounce back. That's the beautiful thing. See, defeat never has the last word not just for black people, but for oppressed people all around the world. In the end, the people shall speak. Now, whether the people will win, well, we don't right. know. They blew the whole planet up and then, you know, <laughs> nobody's around to get the answer. That's what, that's what greed would do. They blow the whole planet up if they can't have their way. And that's very much what we're dealing with today. Dr. West, have you seen uh, or have you heard about the recent FBI raid with the African um, yeah. People's Socialist Party? Okay, uh, Amali uh, Yeshalita uh, was on uh, a day or two ago, and it just kind of reminded me of some of the same, I guess, you know, struggles that some of the civil rights activists went through back in the day. Yeah. 
And here it is, it's 2022. And I'm like, this is still happening. They're still like, and for what? Because why? Because they're helping the community, because they're helping feed people and clothe people, something the government is not, should be doing, but is not doing. And it's it's kind of scary in a way that even in 2022, they're still targeting those types of groups today. No, it's true. It's true. And a lot of that has to do with foreign policy again. You know, you remember when uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad uh, went to jail in the 1940s because of the, the claim was that he was connected to the Japanese. Yeah. You see, so that anybody who's perceived as the enemy, now they say in any connection with the Russians, because I mean, the Russians are engaged in some vicious and ugly treatment of precious Ukrainian brothers and sisters. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but the, Russia is, is is the wounded empire. Wounded empires do that kind of thing, and we have to uh, we have to oppose it. But at the same time, you and I know that if you know there were Russian troops in Mexico or Canada, that, uh, that they would be eliminated immediately by U.S. forces. Mm -hmm. We saw that in Cuba in 1962. So when you have a NATO expansion, 12 or 13 countries that were once part of the Russian Empire and the Russians feel as if their backs are against the wall, then the gangster Putin, with all of his you know, authoritarian and, and, and crypto-fascist proclivities, is going to invade and going to subjugate and so forth. Uh, and you have to call that for what it is. It's very important. Militarism and, 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 and imperialism in any form has to be called into question. But you also have to understand that the larger U.S. imperial context under which he does that, which is this expansion of NATO that was promised to the brother who just died, Gorbachev. We promise you we will not move one inch in any NATO expansion. What did the United States do? The exact thing it did to indigenous peoples when they made a treaty with them. Signed right. the treaty on Monday, shoot them in the back on Wednesday, or violate it on Friday. And that sounds very much like what Israelis do vis-a-vis -vis Palestinians, even when they make certain promises, just to put it out. And then on the ground, expansion of settlements. On the ground, the curtailing of even more rights. On the ground, the augmentation of the apartheid-like conditions on the West Bank, or even the kind of discrimination that still takes place within the state of Israel. And Israel has democratic pr practices. I want to make that clear, just like South Africa. South Africa had democratic practices for certain groups. For certain groups, you see. But the... Uh, 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 so that the, the democratic practices in the state of Israel are very different than the apartheid-like vicious treatment of Palestinians, but the subordination cuts both ways. And of course, 1948 was the founding of a state that never, for the most part, projected coexistence of two peoples, you see. Never. You had some Jewish progressives who did, but they didn't win. They were pushed out and more and more called self-hating Jews. And they, the story goes on, you know, mm -hmm. and on. I'm curious. Uh, we've been talking about this, too, in reference to uh, direct action and mutual aid. So we have kind of a lot of us, you know, come from the Bernie Sanders movement, whether yeah. we came from Bernie Sanders or donated. We come from that that group. And, you know, we saw the way that the Democratic Party treated Bernie Sanders and one of the things I think we wish that would have happened is that Bernie would have pushed back harder against the Democratic Party and started a third party movement, something outside of the Democratic Party. And 
because that did not happen, some of us, you know, we're kind of taking a different approach. And one of the things sure. that I want to get your opinion about is maybe, maybe we've been going about this the wrong way. Maybe I've been putting like too much focus on electoral politics and not enough focus on direct action and mutual aid. So those of us at RBN, we decided to, to flip that and put 80% of our time into direct action and mutual aid and 20% focus on electoral politics and mainly more so the local local politics where we can actually, actually implement more change. And I want to get your opinion about that. Do you think that that could work? Do you think that something needs to change within the way that we've been going about electoral politics in this country? Mm-hmm. No, you, you ask such a, such crucial questions, though. I mean, a lot of times it's the the quality of the questions asked that are even more important than my little glib answer that I tried back out to you. And the reason why I say that because corporate media just specializes these days in not asking serious questions, not asking substantive questions. Uh, I think that uh, you all have got the uh, 80-20 balance about right. Because you see, when, when you're living in a uh, escalating neo-fascist moment, and by neo-fascism, again, I mean the rule of big money, big military, white supremacy is the public face, vicious attack on vulnerable populations, women, attacks on rights, gay, lesbians, trans, black folk, always major target. At the same time, our indigenous brothers and sisters catching so much hell, mm-hmm. still rendered invisible. And therefore, we must always be in solidarity with them, even though they are not as visible as black folk, both in the history of the country in, in terms of the development of the American empire. They were confined to various lands and territories and reservations and things. And I say all that to say is that, you see, the question becomes, well, how do we push back fascism? Uh, mm-hmm. That was the only reason why I uh, I did what I did when I had to drink my cognac and vote for Biden as part of an anti-fascist coalition. You see, because uh, Trump is just a sign and a symptom of a sick, dying American predatory capitalist civilization. And the people are so confused and the people are so uh, uh, damaged in terms of being hurt economically, financially, and socially, and civically, right, that if they can't find some alternative to a, uh, a, a milquetoast neoliberal rule, mm-hmm. they'll either go with Bernie or they'll go neo-fascist. That's where things are now. And, and therefore, uh, the 20% that you talk about in terms of electoral politics is just a way of saying, well, we are part of an anti-fascist coalition, and that means you're going to have to, you know, sometimes really uh, undergo a serious uh, spiritual meditation to help yourself and vote for Democrats that you know, for the most part, are only holding operations against the escalating fascism. The only thing that will end up pushing fascism back is a major organized mass movement, multiracial, multigender, anti-imperialist, critical of the worst of predatory capitalism, and deeply anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-homophobic. Now, you've got a number of fellow citizens who believe that. 
but you don't have the organizing. You don't have the mechanism of a bringing together. So when you say mutual aid, yes. When you say direct action, absolutely. And look at the history of black people. You see, the history of black people is what? Sometimes all we've had is to hit the streets. That's yep. what Watt 65 was. That's what Newark in, in Detroit 67 was. That's when they shot Martin down like a dog in Memphis and 212 cities went up in flames. You see, that, that's not revolution. That's rebellion. But it creates an instability. It creates chaos because you can't take it anymore. Now, it's short-lived. Usually, neo-fascist backlash. So you got to take that credit. We saw that with George Floyd. Mm. Oh, our dear brother, George Floyd Jr. I'm just blessed to write the introduction of a beautiful book that David, my nephew, had done. Uh, but the backlash has been intense. More pro police, more authoritarian, more neo fascist formulations, stronger support of Trump, and so on. And so we have to have some kind of ways in which the mutual aid, the direct action, the organizing, it's just that it's just so difficult to organize because in a moment in which your empire is dying, there's massive distrust. It's hard mm. to trust anybody, even the Black Lives Matter movement, right? We're going to be leaderless. Okay. What does that mean? Well, are you going to be leaders that have integrity the way Martin? So Martin gives every penny of his Nobel Prize to the movement. Now, Coretta wasn't crazy about that. She said, you got kids, brother. He said, <laughs> I know, but we're going to work something out and Harry Belafonte going to help us out. But I don't want the people to ever think I'm stealing from them because I love them too much. Now, we need Black Lives Matter leaders like that. We need leaders like that in our churches. Most of our churches commodified marketized, status-driven, wouldn't understand Jesus if he walked through breakdancing down the hall. Because <laughs> the blood at the cross done turned into Kool-Aid a long time ago. It's just Kool-Aid and it's just another business. So nobody gonna take it seriously. But if it's real blood the way it ought to be, it changed your life. You become a love warrior and a freedom fighter and a joy healer and a, wound, a wounded healer and a joy spreader. Quick, people say, what happened to him? Life changed, just like Malcolm in the in the prison. What happened to Malcolm? He went in a gangster and a thug. He come out loving black people. Some love transformation happened, and in this case, it was with the nation of Islam. Then he got too deep, too deep for the nation. Yeah, because his love started spilling over across the board. But it is no Malcolm without the Honorable Muhammad. We have, we have to acknowledge that. But everybody goes through stages. But that's the kind of love we're talking about. You see. And it's more and more rare in a spiritually decadent culture and society. It's not dead. It ain't going to ever be dead. But it's just weak and feeble, you know, and that's, that's the problem. And that's another reason why what you're doing and what your show is about, your shaping in Baltimore, South Carolina, all around the world, Germany, and things. Ooh, that sister Sabrina. She got a love stamp in her. She got a special kind of spiritual stamp in her that won't allow her to hold her peace. She got to get it out. But hey, that's the best of our movement. That's the best of anybody's movement. I, I think for me, it's just, you know, growing up military family, living in Germany, 
living in a place where everybody had health care. I mean, college is, right. is free. To right. me, it just, it never made sense. Like coming back to the United States and here it's like, we have to pretty much fight for, for those. I feel like those are basic necessities that everybody should have here. But I will say in reference to, to Joe Biden, um, he's not my favorite person. I think I that I still kind of see him kind of fascist in ways too, because I feel like he is continuing to give more money to the police state. He gave more money than Trump did. He wrote the crime bill. I don't see him trying to overturn those convictions of prisoners that are in prison because of his crime bill. I think that should have been the first thing that Joe Biden should have done. Release those prisoners That's in right. prison that have been there for 20 years for like grass, like release them, let them go. Um, I feel like the reason why we have such a, or part of the reason why we have such of a student debt crisis in this country is again, because of Joe Biden, like we can't file bankruptcy on our student loans because of him. And I just, I feel like he, he is also targeting Brown people abroad, Somalia, uh, putting sanctions on Afghanistan. I just feel like at the end of the day, I still feel like Joe Biden looks out for white comfort and corporations. No, I think that that's true because he is a uh, die-in-the-wool neoliberal. Now, there's fascist elements to any neoliberal policy because, one, you've got support of a mass incarceration regime. And use the language of my dear, dear brother Glenn Ford. Oh, we miss brother Glenn. You know, he was one of the giants, really. He's like a Juma Baraka and them. He's just consistent all the way through him. Alana Karanga in his own way. And I keep my habute. These folk who've been consistent for 50 years. That uh, the, 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 the crime bill that you talked about was a crime against humanity. It wouldn't exist without Biden. That's a fascist element within the neoliberal rule. The invasion and occupation of Iraq. That's a, that's a crime against humanity. We don't know how many precious Iraqis dead, you know. And the bailing out of Wall Street rather than homeowners. And that's Barack and Biden in that regard, you see. And it wouldn't be a Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court if it wasn't for Biden. So there's a whole host of crimes against humanity in my moral and spiritual language against Biden. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, you see, the Biden versus the Trump, where the, the, uh, the fascism that can become so pervasive and so intense. Uh, that you and I end up being dragged off to uh, unforeseen sites. Now, Biden would do that under certain conditions, but not under the present ones. Whereas Trump would do it much quicker than he would. That's, that's the difference between a neoliberal and neo-fascist within a militarism abroad, given the American empire, trying to continually preserve itself, it will not reshape the world in its image and its interests. And so I'm, I'm with you there, but you see the Democratic Party uh, is just so decrepit, uh, corporate driven, tied mm -hmm. to big money, can hardly say a mumbling word about a precious Palestinians, can hardly say even a mumbling word for a while about Yemen until Brother Roe and, and, and Brother Bernie and a few others came, stepped up and we appreciate that. Uh, and certainly would not say too much about the, um, the role of the United States in Latin America. I mean, uh, that's going to become much more apparent with, with our brothers and sisters in Colombia now trying to 
build a regime circled around, focus on poor and working people. You just watch U.S. foreign policy then. It's going to get ugly. We've seen it over and over again. That's neoliberalism at home and a support of neo-fascism abroad, you see. So that the, you see how you know complicated this thing gets. And I want I don't I want I don't want to try to conflate neoliberalism with neo-fascism, but I want to acknowledge certain fascist elements in neoliberalism and the ways in which neo-fascism, once it really becomes more full-fledged is one in which, uh, you know, the very, very uh, truncated and yet very precious experiment in democracy in the United States is over. It's just over. And that's you, what we're wrestling oh, ahead, with. No, no, I'm sorry. That's what we're wrestling with right now. Uh, what do you think about like what's going on with uh, the water situations that we have in this country right now? So there was Flint, Michigan. Uh, now there's Jackson, Mississippi. Baltimore, Maryland has contaminated water. And I just found out yesterday, uh, one of the local towns here in Massachusetts also has uh, E. coli in their water as well. Wow. And you're, wow. you're seeing uh, billions of dollars continue to go to Ukraine, at, like every other week, just going out the door. And I have to ask, like, where is the money and the help from the U.S. government to fix the water situation in these communities? And I often wonder, is it that they're not helping those communities because they're predominantly black, because they're working class or poor communities? Is that the reason why they just will just let the water just go to waste like it is? Because I don't think this would happen in Beverly Hills. Wouldn't happen in Beverly Hills, but it would probably happen with poor white brothers and sisters in Appalachia, though. That's true who yeah. don't have clout, who don't have visibility, and their humanity so often downplayed, uh, or it would happen to poor uh, uh, Asians, you know, in, 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 in St. Uh, Paul, Minnesota, where you have a critical mass of precious uh, Asians there. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, the white supremacy is always there. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, that's, that's the funny thing about both Brother Biden and Sister Harris, you know, they, they, you remember when they said, America's not a racist nation. What do you think, <laughs> Vice President Harris? You went to Howard University, you got to find superb education. Do you think America, no, no, it's not a race. And then here come uh, the brother from uh, South Carolina, what's it, uh, the farm, the big, the big pharmacy man, uh, uh, Clyburn. Uh, well, we, we got some racist pockets, but it's not really a racist nation. You know, <laughs> biggest liars conceivable. And then when Biden comes back and says, well, you got semi-fascism at work in the Republican Party. And you say, yes, but how come you can't tell the truth that America's racist, but you tell the truth about semi-fascism? Oh, you just a narrow professional managerial politician concerned about your election. You don't give a goddamn about poor people in any substantive way. Just be honest about it, Joe. Well, he's just so empathetic and he feels everybody's pain. Quit lying to me. Mm -mm. He didn't feel the pain of my brothers and sisters in the, uh, in, in the prison system for over 50 years. No, no, no. He didn't feel the pain of the Iraqis. He didn't feel the pain of all of those folk dying by U.S. drones and 26,000 bombs dropped during Obama's administration every year. And, and still being dropped today. I mean, that's where the critique has to be made. And this is not a matter of demonizing Biden. It's a matter of contextualizing his, him and his policies, given the imperial presence, power of the United States 
and the predatory capitalist structure of the society. The rich still get richer, the poor still get very much poor. And even the money for water that you're talking about, that I, mean, I, I, I don't have anything against supporting our precious Ukrainian brothers and sisters because I'm anti-imperialism, whatever form it takes. It could be Soviet empire imperialism, it could be Chinese imperialism in Africa. It could be US imperialism, it could be British imperialism and so forth. Uh, uh, but all of that big, big money that's being spent in a whole host of areas in the military, yeah. the war profiteers, the tax breaks for Wall Street. I mean, all of that money, just a small slice of that could create clean water for our precious black brothers and sisters in Jackson or yeah. Flint or any American citizen who doesn't have access to clean water. So is that sense of people who have just reached the point where they don't give a damn about their vulnerable citizens at all. And if it's up for them, they'll go to the moon or Mars or New Zealand to escape the catastrophic consequences of their greedy policies. And we're seeing that more and more and more, you know, the very, very rich now, you know, they, they, they're trying to escape. Oh my God! It's just this is inevitable. This is this is just ecological catastrophe. Uh, the, the the rioting of poor people, the over unruly passion of working people who we know we've been screwing them for the last fifty, screwing them in in, in a pejorative, trashing them in the last fifty years. It's coming back. You know, Malcolm said, "Chickens, come home to roost. You're gonna reap what you sow. You don't say." That's exactly right. You do. You do. Uh, yeah. That's why we got to keep fighting, though, you see. That's why we got to keep fighting. We got to keep trying to push it back. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious. I want to get your opinion about, in reference to the civil rights movement, because my, I, I think my disappointment was with the George Floyd protests at the end. After mm. Joe Biden won, everybody went home. Like, okay, police yeah. brutality is over now. Uh, because Biden won, so we're just going to go back home. And I, I think people really lost, they missed the point. Uh, police brutality continues regardless if you have a Republican or a Democrat uh, president. So ever since then, it's been kind of a struggle to get people to come out to protest. Uh, we have not seen those numbers uh, in, in a long time since George Floyd. And it's almost like pulling teeth just to get people to come to one protest. At the same time, I can look back at the civil rights movement and they weren't just protesting. They were boycotting. They um, they had the, the green book. Uh, they were connecting with people across different states. And this went on for a long time. And I have to ask, like, what do you feel? And I asked uh, Chris Hedges this question as well. What Ooh, do you brother feel? Chris, brother Chris, now he's yes. a truth teller now. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. What do you feel? Uh, they were probably doing differently because we have more technology now. Uh, we try to gather people together on uh, social media and different groups to get people to come out to do direct action. But they were able to do this decades ago with no internet and no social media, and they had more people come out. So what do you feel we may be doing uh, incorrectly, per se? Well, one of my dear is that we had courageous leaders who wouldn't sell their souls for a mess of pottage. 
you had leaders who had a genuine care and love for the people and they were still human beings so they were still doing some things maybe they shouldn't have done but the dominant bent of their life was not to be successful within the system but to change the system itself to change the system itself and so the democratic party and liberals have been trying to co-opt social movements for the last 200 years and in the, in the civil rights movement in the 60s, Democratic Party did everything it could to co-opt it. Everything it could to co-opt it. And you had a major, major break that took place. There's no doubt about that. You had those who said, who went Cold War, highly patriotic, flag-waving, success-oriented black leaders. That was Roy Wilkins and company. Then you had those who supported decolonization, anti-imperialists against the European and American empires with Mandela, with what was happening in Latin America from below, you see, and they were pushed to the margins. And what happens in, in, in our day is precisely the success-oriented, flag-waving folk. They're the ones who get embraced. They get streamlined mainstream become the black faces and the black spokespersons and so forth with very little support from everyday black people and no organizing at all mm. just represent i represent i represent we need some we need some organic connection with organizing folk that's what william barbara's talking about that's very important that's crucial mm. you see and, and, and then there's the spiritual uh, crisis that we all ought to be very, very candid about. And that is that, uh, you know, the great uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Hesher used to say, if you view life with a gold rush, you go end up worshiping the golden calf. Mm. And that's very much what we have. We got too many black leaders who worship the golden calf. So all you got to do is dangle something in front of them and they go running. And they forget about the people. It's like Obama's memoir. What is it called? The Promised Land. He said, yeah, he got there, but black black poor didn't get there. Black working class didn't get there. He got to the Promised Land. That's not what Martin was talking about. Martin wouldn't even think about going to the Promised Land unless the poor folk got there with him. That's why he's willing to live and die for them. But he got to the promised land. He got to Martha's Vineyard. He got to the mansion in Hawaii. He got to so-and-so. He got, hey, what about the poor children? What's the child poverty rate for black kids and brown kids or any kids? That's the measure. Don't even mention promised land. You're not talking about Jamal and Letitia getting there first. That's the kind of leadership we had more of in the 60s. That wasn't always the case because you got, I mean, we know we had patriarchs and transphobic and homophobic folk, but generally speaking, with Mumi and them, shoot, oh, they were to tell some truth that meant they would have their necks cut off and they told the truth anyway. That's what's crucial. And so you get a spiritual shift and you get success oriented mainstream liberals versus greatness in form of service, willingness to tell truth, seek justice, and pay any cost, which means sometimes you get pushed off the job, sometimes you get lied on, sometimes you got death threats, sometimes on and on and on. 
but you're going that way. That's what Muhammad Ali said. Take your goddamn belt. I know I'm the greatest, and I don't, I don't, I don't have to wait for you to tell me I'm the greatest. Take your belt, cause I love black people more. Ooh, Tommy Smith, John Carlos. I know our careers are over, but we got an international stage, and the whole world's watching, and we're gonna be in solidarity with Shaniqua and them. That's who we stand with, Roosevelt and them, on the way to jail, mistreated dilapidated mm. school systems, indecent housing, massive unemployment, told that they ain't nothing. That's who we in solidarity with. And the rest of the world look at them and say, wow, boy, that's some serious, serious black folk there. Then here come Kate Curtis Mayfield, we a winner. Woo, no, here come Aretha, respect. Here come James, say it loud. Here come the Charlottes. For God's sake, we got to give more power to the people. Oh, shit. What a great people, even if they trying to crush us, even if we got relative defeat, so what? We keep fighting, we keep coming, we keep rising, we keep swinging, because it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Oh, that's Duke right there. That's that's artistic royalty right there, isn't it? That's Duke Ellington. We ain't got the Billy Holiday yet. We ain't got the Count Basie yet. We ain't got the Sarah Bond yet. We ain't got the Ella Fitzgerald yet. What royalty? That's our history. That's where we come from. What a joy to be part of such a caravan of love in the language of the Isley brothers. It's very, very different compared to today. Because oh, yeah. yeah, I feel like a lot of us are mainly like online. We spend a lot of our time online and not necessarily meeting people face to face like we should or like people did back then. But you're right. Like in reference to the organizing, they were on it. Like they had the green book to help people know like which towns and which roads to take and to avoid. Like it just, it's very different compared to today. I have noticed that. Yeah, but you, but you, you are an equivalent to the green book and the red book too. I mean, you, because the thing is that you, you do have to adapt to the new circumstances. There's no doubt about that. You know what I mean? That, Shoot, the 1940s, they didn't have transistor radios. Then they finally got black radio stations. That was a whole new breakthrough, right? Oh my God, now we got, we can talk to each other and communicate. So now that we jump forward 80 years, we got the internet. No, we need Sabrina and them on the internet. That's the red and green book equivalent, but it has to have the same perennial virtues of courage, love, service to the least of these, trying to be morally consistent, humility, style, sense of humor. See, that's the raw stuff for any kind of organizing because you're not going to have a leadership if that's trustworthy if you don't have that. And that's true for any kind of leadership. You can be local in, in, in the mosque, in the, in the synagogue, in the church, and trade union movement. And if you basically just have folk trying to get over, obsessed with the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught then you're not going to have trustworthy leadership. Nobody, I mean, just have massive distrust across the board. And that's very much what we have today in your generation, for example, much more than in mine. Mm. You see what I mean? Much more than, much more than mine, you see. And you're not responsible for it. Those are circumstances over which you have no control. No, that's true. That's a good point. Um, I want to get your opinion about general strike. 
Uh, so yeah. this is something that's it's come up a couple times over the past like two years or so. I think it started trending after the pandemic started. But some of us just kind of feel like we need a general strike. Uh, now, what that would look like, I think in order for it to be successful, you have to shut down transportation. You have to shut down the ports, right? Because that's how products and goods move uh, and come in and out. But I mean, there's things that go along with that. That means that people would have to quit their jobs. There's We would have to have a lot of mutual aid in order to do that. But I feel like at this point, that's the only way that corporations and oligarchs are really going to listen to us and take us seriously. Uh, I just saw the other day, Jeff Bezos complained about a faculty member, a black female faculty member at Carnegie Mellon, and mm. was able to complain in a way to tell Twitter to remove her tweets because she complained about how the British Empire how how they impacted her family. And Jeff Bezos didn't think that was appropriate. He was able to just get it pulled just like that. That's how dangerous it has become with some of these billionaires that we have. And so I feel like for me, I feel like at this point, we just, we have to have a general strike because the politicians are only doing so much for us. And I feel like it's really the corporations that we have to hit back against. But I want to get your opinion about that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Georg um, Sorrell's, book on reflections on violence we call for a general strike now it's not calling for a violent strike you're not calling for a violent strike i've always liked the idea of any blow for justice that casts a light on the deplorable plight of precious poor and working people you can call it general strike whatever you want to call it uh, now then the question becomes well what goes into the making of it because you can announce it and you've got to have mechanisms in place of people, not just the slices of individuals, but institutions and others that have reached a point that they're willing to, to move in that direction. Because that, as you say, you know, that's major, major sacrifice. Now, as I mentioned before, though, the, uh, the history of black rebellions is much more uh, um, persistent uh, in the history of this empire than general strikes are. Mm. They just are because, see, the problem of a general strike in terms of its plausibility and possibility, I love the idea of it because you got to do something. Right. Got to do something to call attention to the suffering. There's no doubt about it. Somebody messing with my mama, I'll, I'll call it a general strike, God dang it. It might just be me and my partners, but we're going to do something. You see what I mean? And that, and that becomes contagious. But to really be able to pull it off, you see, you got to deal with all of the, 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 the tensions and the fractions and the cleavages in the country so that people are willing to both come together and sacrifice. Whereas, see, rebellions are more spontaneous. They're more spontaneous. And you can't control them. And I think we're going to have either calls for general strikes or more rebellions or more acts of rage or more un ugly attacks on people, especially I don't believe in attacking any innocent person. I don't care who they are. I don't care what color they are. But I think that it's hard to see how that's not going to increase given the unbelievable inability of the neoliberal order to deliver to poor and working people. It just, it, it just does not have the capacity to do that. And it is losing its legitimacy, not simply because it's neoliberal, 
but it's losing its legitimacy because the professional managerial class as a whole is associated with greed and arrogance and condescension mm -hmm. and detachment and distance. It is losing its legitimacy. That, that's what the gangster Trump understands. As long as he can highlight the professional managerial class, especially with CNN, MSNBC, and so forth, you see, he knows he can push that button because the level of contempt and hostility among everyday Americans vis-a-vis -vis the professional managerial class. <sighs> and you got a slice of that professional managerial class that will continually fan and fuel that. This is the J.D. Vancers and others, right? The ones who go to Yale and act like they still living on the farm. <laughs> <laughs> because they still part of the same system, but more and more in a neo-fascist form you know, the Ted Cruz's and others, right? They go to Princeton and Harvard Law and love to wave the Ivy League flag. But as soon as it comes to battle, they act like they're in organic connection with the poor and working class and they pr promoting policies that's crushing them, you see. Mm -hmm. So they just become hypocritical and vacuous and shallow and indifferent talking heads that reinforces the ugliness, as it were. But they're hitting something very real, which is the greed the hypocrisy of neoliberalism in which is the indifference and the distance of the professional managerial classes. And that cuts across color. It cuts across color, it cuts across gender, it cuts across region. And so back to your question, I, uh, I, I would, I, I'm willing to reflect on, explore and be a part of any effort that highlights the majesty and the sanctity of poor and working people. All right, all right. You guys heard that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Professor West, I have two more questions for you. Um, the first one is, and you've probably gotten this question before, but um, when, when Chris Hedges was here last time, I asked him too, so, uh, but I yes, want to hear your yes. response first before I tell you what he said. Um, yeah. Would you ever consider running for president as a third party or independent candidate and why or why not? I mean, I'd do anything to try to enhance the situation of poor people and working people. I'd sing a song in the shower. I'd get my violin out after playing for 20 years, classical violin, I hadn't played in 40 years, but I would play a new song if I could contribute to the plight of poor and working people. It's just that when you look at the, um, just look, look at it just how, um, uh, trunk, what's the right word? I mean, just how corrupt uh, the system is, though, that you have to think long and hard as to whether you really, really want to become a, a bona fide member in it. I mean, me and Brother Bernie had long talks about this because I love my brother dearly and he loves me. We had real disagreements, a lot of things, you know, in terms of the Middle East. I mean, he's very critical, of course, of uh, right-wing Zionism and so forth. But I'm critical of, in a much more broader and substantive way about that in relation to Palestinians. He's done and, and done been progressive on a whole host of crucial issues, you know, Wall Street, as strong as he can be. But I'm telling him, what is it like just to be inside of the halls of that level of legalized bribery and normalized corruption? And you know, my brother Noah, my brother Bernie is, well, it's not easy, not easy, brother. It's not easy, it's not easy. I said, I don't know if I can live my life like that. 
And the thing would be true for running for any out of office. On the other hand, if it's just an effort of education and consciousness raising and so forth and so on, who knows? Who knows? But what did Brother Chris say? He said no. He said, <laughs> he said the Green Party did ask him uh, one time before, and he said that um, he thinks he feels like more comfortable like doing what he does now uh, than putting than doing something like that same thing you mentioned about the corruption and stuff like that but yeah because we had paired him about we the audience i mean like we had paired him with you we said cornell hedges and chris um excuse me cornell west and chris hedges should run together uh but yeah he said no (laughs) well the thing about brother chris you know he's my dear dear brother we've been in prison together been out with mumi and gratifer together the prison that uh he's an ordained Presbyterian minister, you see, I'm, I'm just an everyday gut bucket, uh, pew sitting down, black Baptist. So as a, a Presbyterian, he's got to be open to the mysteries of God's power. And if God somehow talked to that brother late in the midnight hour and said, I, against your will, choose you to be a force for good in this way, and you and Brother West gonna do a thing together, then you don't know, he might change his mind. Because as an ordained minister, he's not in full control. He's got a vocation, he's got a calling. It's what the great Max Weber called the Beruf of, of, of Luther and Calvin. It's, it's, a, uh, uh, it's a calling that has little to do with what you really want. It has everything to do with what you are here to do in light of how you orient your time, body, mind, heart, and soul. And we know Brother Chris, that brother has been consistent and persistent decade after decade. And New York Times trying to crush him, and we go on and on and on, and he's still strong as ever, you know. Mm-hmm. So you never know. I mean, the, the thing is, is that history is always unpredictable incomplete and unfinished. And uh, uh, as much as both of us would say, doesn't make any sense right now, given the level of corruption, who knows what the future brings? We always have to be ready for service in any form. Okay. Uh, Yeah, Cynthia McKinney said the same. She said, uh, you never know if she would consider running again. She's another another strong freedom fighter, I'm telling Yeah. She's she's a tough one. And um, my final question for you is, uh, do you regret your vote for Joe Biden? And and I ask that question because and not saying that you should have voted for Trump, obviously, but I ask that question because uh, looking around today, do you feel like Joe Biden has done enough for particularly people of color and the African-American community in this country? If you could change things, if you could take it back, do you think you would take it back? Well, when I voted for him, I knew that he was a milquetoast neoliberal type of those crimes against humanity. So I didn't have high expectations. And we don't mm. have high expectations. You don't have profound disappointments. I knew that you ha- we, we had to keep collective pressure, organized pressure on him. And by him, we're not just talking about him. We're talking about that strong corporate neoliberal uh, uh, majority in the Democratic Party that he's beholden to and the Wall Streets and the Silicon Valleys and the Pentagons and the war profiteers that he's beholden to, you see. So that I thought fairly through that uh, 
I knew that it was going simply a kind of uh, symbolic anti-fascist gesture to try to keep Trump out. And once that was it, the, 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 the critique, the relentless critique intensified against Biden because you have to tell the truth. You have to tell the truth. You have to tell the, focus on the truth of the suffering of poor and working people. That is the criteria. And by that criteria, you know, he's, he's been a failure. He's been a failure across the board. Now, people can talk about what he's done legislatively and Sister Jackson, who I have great respect for, you know, as a uh, uh, judge and what have you, but these are all very, very ornamental in terms of the things that we're talking about, which is fundamental. But I support those ornamental things. I'm glad Sister Jackson is on the court but I know she's going to have a dissenting vote for the next 40 or 50 years. So I'm not looking for any kind of liberation for her in terms of what she's doing. So that's part of the pressure. But the real pressure is when you start eliminating this poverty and when you start having workers control over their product and when you really start having health care for everybody, you have free schools of high quality and you have massive pullbacks of militaristic presence and you have control of these greedy corporations that would do anything, including blowing up the planet just for their next yacht and their next greedy grab. You see, that's what, that's the lens through which I think is very important to look at any society, including the American empire. And so in that sense, um, you know, if I hadn't voted for him, I'd be doing exactly the same thing, saying exactly the same thing. No doubt about that. And uh, um, uh, the, the, this fascism is so real that um, uh, it, it's difficult to be able to keep telling truths about uh, some of these uh, very dangerous neoliberal politicians, even as they, as Democrats, might, under many conditions, push back the thicker forms of fascism that you would, we would get if a Trump were in office or a DeSantis or any other uh, Trump-like figure. So you can see it's, 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 it's like the cotton club in terms of you got to be moving and grooving and flexible and fluid, just like a jazz woman and a jazz man thinking, hey, ain't nothing dogmatic here, nothing static and stationary here. The question is, what kind of wisdom, what kind of discernment do you have? What kind of practical judgment do you have? What kind of courage do you have in organic solidarity with poor and working people? Right now, poor and working people are hardly even an afterthought other than an election. Then you make some symbolic gesture. Then you go right back into the pockets of the corporate elite, you see. And, uh, uh, and that's one, one reason why, again, you know, I keep coming back to both yourself and, 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 uh, um, and others. I was just with Sister Brianna the other day and you know, her voice is very important. The voice don't have to be the same. You see, our anthem of black folks lift every voice. As long as it ain't an echo, Lift your voice. The voice is going to be different. <laughs> Absolutely. It's going, but if they, if, they, if they headed toward the truth and the condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak, which means those voices are allowing suffering to speak the way you do and she does and the others, and William Barton and the others, hey, like Chomsky and the others, hey, that's my crowd. And we're going to go down fighting. And when, if they crush us, we're going to have smiles on our faces. And if we triumph, we're going to break dance and make MC Hammer look like a Boy Scout.
because poor folk and working folk will be able to walk with great dignity and decency. Mm. Dr. West, I'm sorry, I, I lied. There is just one more question. Sorry. Oh, sure, that's fine. <laughs> just looking at my notes, I realized. That's um, fine. Well, okay, so one of the things I, I did say uh, about Bernie's campaign is I, if there was one thing I wish he could have implemented, it was a reparations plan. And mm. I think, you know, I wasn't part of campaign, so I don't know his decision making with that. But I think maybe he may have felt if he did do that, he would alienate white voters. And I, I still look back on that. And I think that that actually would have sent a message to the black community, particularly African-Americans in places like South Carolina. I think that would have really sent a message. Uh, I wanted to get your opinion about that. Do you think that may have been a mistake and how do you feel about reparations um, being implemented to African-Americans here in the United States? No, but I've been part of reparations movement now over 40 years, going all the way back to my dear brother, Randall Robinson. Remember his great book, The Debt? Randall Robinson, like he and I together were part of the group that took over the president's office at Harvard in 1972 when he was at Harvard Law and I was Harvard undergrad. I was head of the Black Student Association with, 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 with my dear brother from New Orleans, uh, uh, Daryl, and, and he was head of the Pan-African Association. He then founded Trans-Africa and we had a reparations committee and we met every two months for almost 10, 12 years, Charles Ogletree and Harry Belafonte and so forth, so that uh, I think reparation is, 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 is crucial. There's no doubt about it. It's about telling the truth about America's past. And when you tell the truth and see the damage, it's like tort law, you have to make some kind of repair. Now, you can never do it solely in money because you're talking about human beings, but there should be billions and billions of dollars. And William Dougherty and uh, Sister Yvette Cornell and Brother Antonio and the others are, have been highlighting this, and I'm very much a part of that movement. Now, when I talk with Brother Bernie, you know, my view was this. First, I ask him, what do you think? I don't want him out there saying something he don't believe. Right. I said, this is what I believe. I've been at this for 40 years. And he would say, well, I, 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 I understand how deep white supremacy cuts, and we know he's anti-racist in his sensibilities and so forth. But it wasn't simply a practical, strategic formulation. I think for him, you know, he, he was thinking, well, if, if somehow we could, as citizens, give everybody the free health care and the education and so forth and so on, that would be almost a kind of surrogate for reparation. And I've said, no, people deserve that based on citizens. I'm fighting for the white sister in Montana for that. I'm fighting for the brown brother in East L.A. for that. You know, for the, for the Asian sister in, 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 in Arizona for that. But no black folk deserve something else, too. And so we would go back and forth, you know, we brothers, so we ain't, you know, cussing each other out and stuff. We just disagreeing, right? But I wanted to make sure that he believed it. See, I didn't want him to just say something he don't believe just to be a politician or to get black folk. No, you don't go in front of black folks, say something you don't believe. That's like singing your song. You don't, even, don't believe what you're singing. You're just singing a song for money. Get out of the way. Let somebody come on. Even if they singing out of tune, at least they sing in front of their soul. At least they say for something that they believe, you see. So when Bernie said, you know, I, I'm just, I, I don't, I, I'm not a supporter of reparations. I said, okay, we disagree. Like, like on the Palestinian question. Well, I'm critical of this and I'm critical of settlements. No, we need a deeper critique mm. of the Israeli domination of our precious Palestine. No, but I don't believe that, brother. Okay, but that's, 
BDS, remember the big 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 debate we had over the uh, boycott and divest and sanctions? Brother West, I know you've been part of BDS all these years. That's not me. Then we had we had our discussion about it. I said, okay, I, I'm not convinced by your argument, but that's not you. You're not going to push BDS. But it's not just if all a politician can give is just solely some Machiavellian justification, then I lose a lot of respect for him. I said, no, Brother Bernie, I want to know what you believe. And he said, this is why I disagree with BDS. And then he talked about academic boycotts and so forth and so on. And I said, okay, I mean, it's plausible, but not persuasive. I think that's, that's I think what I said. I said, that's plausible, brother, but I'm not persuaded. I'm going with boycott, sanction, and the, uh, 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 what's the other boycott? And divestment, that's the third, and divestment, just like in South Africa. We did the same thing for El Salvador in the 1980s. And I would do the same thing for other countries that were undergoing the kind of oppression where they have no other alternatives in raising their voices in the world while their children and men and women are being crushed. Their backs are against the wall. They're rendered invisible. They're suffering. It looks as if they're all by themselves in the world. No, I can't stand anybody, any oppressed group to feel as if Nobody cares about their suffering. And you mm. would think that, I mean, good God, our precious Jewish brothers and sisters, 2,000 years they've had to come to terms with that. So you would think they'd be the first ones to make sure that there's never conditions under which a group feels as if their oppression and their suffering is so thoroughly rendered invisible and their response to change it are impotent. Because that's been the history of Jews for almost 2,000 years in the country, in the world, in terms of vicious attacks on them. But now they have their own nation state. They have their connection to empire. Ooh, human, human, all too human to become just as corrupt as any other nation state. And just as indifferent to the suffering of the poor of any other nation state. How sad we've seen this cycle over and over again in human history. I was just in Rome. I spoke outside of the Vatican here this summer. And we went to the synagogue and saw the synagogue. 400 years of precious Jewish brothers and sisters ghettoized and forced to wear special clothes and got all kinds of stamps and brands on them and the Catholic Church right there. And I had to tell right at the Catholic, I said, you know, all of this Michelangelo art and all of this magnificent paintings, all these magnificent paintings, they're pointing to a Jesus who comes from those hated people over there out of the, from that synagogue in that ghetto. That's where he comes from. And Peter's body, which is the basis of the Vatican, that's where he comes from, that haunted, hated, dejected, oppressed, dominated people, Jews in Europe. So don't get locked into the idolatry of how beautiful everything is and overwhelmed by the awe of the paintings, which we understand, because it's Michelangelo ain't no joke. He, he got a whole lot going on. But it's idolatry if you lose sight of the Jesus he's pointing to. And the Jesus he's pointing to is a Jesus from right here in Harlem. It's the Jesus from East L.A. It's the Jesus from peasants in Columbia. It's the Jesus from the West Bank. It's the Jesus from poor Jews being attacked in France. It's the Jesus of Dalit peoples. It's the Jesus of Romans and so-called gypsies in Europe. It's the Jesus of poor folk all across the board. 
So no matter how magnificent the Vatican is, it's sounding brass and tinkling cymbal if it loses sight of who that Jesus is, where he came from, and why he was crucified by the major empire of the day. Oh, that's what you call trying to bear witness to a great black tradition in a European context. But it's not skin pigmentation, my sister, you know that. It's spiritual formation, it's ethical cultivation, it's moral action, and in, in the black forms and styles, it's with a smile. Well, Dr. West, thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really do appreciate it. Um, and anything else that you have coming up that you do, anything you want to shout out while you're here? Oh, no, not really. Just glad to uh, be in conversation with you. Any support, help I could be, let me know. Because I'm very serious when I said when I started that uh, when I got a chance to see that dialogue you had with Brother Adolf, I was just so glad. You know, Adolf is one of the great uh, leftist minds, and I don't always agree with that, Brother. He and I have been 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 <laughs> been uh, going at it a number of different ways, but I love him. I love his hatred of injustice, his critiques of capitalism, and so forth. And the dialogue that you have to get his voice out is very, and just not him, but Chris and so many others that you that you that, that you do. So, so I don't want you to ever get dis. Courage, not at all. See, despair is different. To wrestle with despair is human. He or she has never despair has never lived. Mm. But don't get discouraged. That's the thing. You stay strong, stay steadfast, my sister, because you stand in in the tradition of a great folk, and all of them are not chocolate. It's a human tradition. But yourself and myself, as a chocolate folk. We got some leaven in this loaf. We got some leaven to add. <laughs> Grandmama and them ain't live for nothing. You know what I mean? No, no. You know what Baltimore was all about. Mm -hmm. Oh, Lord, Jeff, with Billy Holiday, Drew Hill, and Ragged Edge. We got mm -hmm. some serious Baltimore folk. Cap Calloway and them. Mm. Oh, yes. So you stay strong. And God bless you and your family. All right? Thank you. Same to you. Talk to you later. All right. Don't sit. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.